0: I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of Vanityfair.com. And I'm here with our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello, Katie. And that's it. It's yeah. just us. <laughs> we have we have thrown the men out of the studio and taken over the podcast. Who knows what might happen by the end of this episode? We'll see if uh, if Vanity Fair remains intact. It's a coup. It's a bloodless coup. <laughs> We've been building up to this level of power for a long time, and uh, I'm just I'm just so glad it could happen on Mike. Yeah. Which Which one of us is the favorite, though? Like,
3: <laughs> are you more of an Emma Stone or are you more of a Rachel Vice?
0: Oh my God. Wait, have you seen the favorite? You have seen the favorite. Yes, I. Have. Oh my God. I mean, it's it's so hard to choose. Like, probably neither. Maybe
3: both. Yeah. I think we should all just admit that on certain days where one or the other. We all have a
0: little bit of one of them in us. So Richard isn't totally absent on this episode. At the end of it, we'll be sharing his interview with Richard E. Grant, the star of Can You Ever Forgive Me, which we've talked about previously. I know Richard's a big fan of the movie. I finally saw it this week. He is wonderful in it. But for the most part, it will just be me and Joanna. We're going to talk about some recent developments with Oscar-winning actresses who we love and then get into two categories that are fun to talk about. Best actor, which we said we were going to talk about last week and then ran out of time. Uh, And then the screenplay categories, which are totally fascinating and kind of a mirror image from last year. <laughs> here we go okay so joanna you wanted to talk about the latest in uh two of our favorite australians naomi watts and kate blanchett are making headlines this week because uh, they're making television which shouldn't be surprising at this point for like a big movie star to make a tv show but these two do kind of seem surprising especially because of what naomi watts is up to which i think is what i want to talk about first
3: yeah, well, you know, Naomi was, she did have a Netflix series, Gypsy, and then she was. Oh, man. Sorry, Gypsy. <laughs> <laughs> and then she was on Twin Peaks The Return. So this isn't like her first foray into television. You know, she. But, Joanna, was-, was
0: Twin Peaks The Return really television?
3: Oh, it's what a good question. You want to have that argument again? <laughs> <laughs> nor was Gypsy, I think. But um, <laughs> the news is that Naomi Watts has been cast as the lead, uh, presumptive lead, in the Game of Thrones prequel series that does not have a title, nor do they even want us calling it a prequel? But for for simplicity's sake, let's call it a prequel. It will be led by Naomi Watts, which is a huge step up in star power. Uh, you know, if you think back to when Game of Thrones launched in 2011, Sean Bean was the biggest name in the cast, and he didn't even stick around that long. So it's you know it's a different approach to cast such a name uh, at the front of the series, and it just you know shows me that this is where HBO is putting just a lot of their resources right
0: now. Can we talk about the one word in the description of her character that made me so intrigued, which I'm sure you remember, as she's described as a socialite? A charismatic socialite, yeah. Oh my God, like we've seen like Cersei, obviously, uh, but so little of like Westeros high society. And I think I said this in our Slack that the idea of like the Canto bite sequence of The Last Jedi as an entire series, where it's just like, here are the wealthy people in this world. I would love that if it's so different from the rest of Game of Thrones.
3: Well, so when we throw the men off the podcast, then I just get to do like Game of Thrones theories on this podcast, <laughs> right? Here's my favorite. Here's my favorite current going theory around who Naomi Watts might be playing. It was, it was like kind of surprising that that character description of her as a like a charismatic socialite uh, who's hiding a secret, right? And so yeah, that's really exciting to to think of palace intrigue because that's an aspect of Game of Thrones early seasons that I really liked that have kind of gone away, uh, you know, been replaced by big battles and all that kind of thing. So. Originally when this show was first announced I think a lot of people thought it would take place up north in Game of Thrones if you watch Game of Thrones you know that like the northerners are very like dour and serious and it's a lot about honor but that's like where a lot of the monsters are so like that that was the presumption that that was what would happen Charming socialite, however, tells me that we're going to be back down in the south, which is, like, I think where all the fun really happens anyway. Wait, could and it be in your favorite place of Dorne? Could that be far Dorne, south? but what I think it is is there's a character from this time, like, and, and you know, the advantage that Game of Thrones this season or this prequel series will have is that it takes place in a time of George R. R. Martin's books where a lot is not known because it's so far back in history, so they could just make up whatever they want. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about eventually Arya Stark showing up. Exactly. And like um, HBO was pitching it as a Here's the ancient history of Westeros, but it's not the story you think you know. So like, you know, they're giving themselves license to just mess with whatever George R. R. Martin has set down in his books. And there's this one character, I swear, I'm going to keep this quick. If you're like a huge Oscar <laughs> fan and you're like, I didn't sign up to hear Joanna Robinson ramble about Game of Thrones. But there's this one character who is like a trickster character called Land the Clever, who, you know, using wits uh, wits and guidelines Alone tricked House Casterly out of the Castle Casterly Rock. Land the clever founded House Lannister. Um, mm. And according to, um, like you know, all all the record that we have is that Land the clever is a man. But I think they're casting this as a woman which opens up a whole wealth of possibilities one that maybe history rewrote like this very clever woman as a man two maybe she's like the woman behind the power something like that land's wife or something like that three my favorite <laughs> theory in my own head is that we're gonna get like a Shakespeare love Shakespearean sort of like cross-dressing thing with Naomi Watts dressing up as a man and I would oh I would just lord. like oh my lord is exactly right so um, anyway sorry to make this briefly I a Game of Thrones
0: podcast, but but um, if you are someone who gets excited about our endless best actress conversations, which we keep having, uh, you should be invested in what Naomi Watts is going to do next. So there's your connection.
3: Best actress at the Emmys 2022 or whatever. <laughs> uh. It'll probably it'll probably be like in like 10
0: years. <laughs>
3: <It's> just, <laughs> and then let's uh, let's talk about Kate Blanchett. What Kate? Blanchett's yeah. Doing. So yeah. that
0: actually seems to connect more to what we've talked about on this show because we've talked about um, American Crime Story and uh, the OJ series before that. When we talk about the Emmys, we've been kind of getting into uh, FX's run of limited original series Uh, and Kate Blanchett is going to be on a really interesting one that I hadn't heard about existing at all about basically the uh, push for the Equal Rights Amendment in the 70s and she's playing the villain of essentially of Phyllis Lafley, who was opposed to it Um, and it's the it's the first major TV role in America she's ever played it's really exciting
3: yeah it's a huge deal. This is a huge coup for FX. I think all the time, you know, John Landgraf, a couple years who runs FX, a couple years ago at the Television Critics Association uh, presentation, was talking about. I think he called it like the Great Talent Wars upcoming, which is just like Netflix, HBO and FX, I would say in Showtime, like scrapping over and Apple, we should talk about like just throwing no so worries. much money at the biggest names they can find to try to like out talent the next person. And, you know, so FX grabbing Kate is a huge feather in their cap. So, you know, I'm happy for them because like I I worry about FX in, in these talent wars. And uh, I'm, I'm really I mean, they've they've done amazing projects with amazing, you know roles for women uh, on that network and you know this this is Musty TV as far as I'm concerned. Well,
0: and also I kind of assumed looking at it, I was like, oh, it's probably a Ryan Murphy thing because he's been kind of the uh the reigning king of American crime story and like FX's historical looks back. But it's not a Ryan Murphy project, it's a totally different different talent. It's Davi Walker who is oh Davi Waller, who was involved in Mad Men and Halt and Catch Fire. So that's actually promising too. Ryan Murphy's done amazing stuff for them, but it's cool to see them diversifying their talent there. Well, if you want to talk about the talent wars, Netflix snatched Ryan Murphy from uh FX. Oh, that's right. So <laughs> well, I was gonna talk About how we talked about the talent wars last week, about Netflix hiring everybody so that no one else can have them. So uh, I'm glad someone else is competing.
3: You know, they snatched Shonda Rhimes from ABC. Like they just went for like these big mega producers from uh, their competitors and threw money at them. So. well thank you
0: Kate for taking a check from a place that seems (laughs) like it's giving you something exciting to do
3: and I like that Naomi Naomi going to HBO is like you know because Nicole Kidman is doing a bunch of stuff for HBO so and they're such good friends so yeah these these Australian women let's see what they they want to do on our tv screens in the next few years
0: Okay, so as mentioned uh, last week, we said we were going to talk about best actor, and then got so hyped up about best actress that we lost track and ran out of time. Uh, but we actually wound up having kind of a good reason to get back into it because uh, the ringer Sean Fennessy kind of uh, planted his flag on this Oscar race in a piece that was published uh, on October 30th to so say he's saying we're about to see the most competitive best actor Oscars race in years. Which, Joanne, I think we can we can quibble with that. Sean has made a lot of great points in this article. We may or may not find it as competitive, but it is a really interesting rundown of all of the names that are flinging their way around there. Like it's a, there's not like a big veteran who everyone thinks is overdue and is gonna cruise for it. Like the Gary Oldman story from a few years ago. There's not some like up and comer who everyone's excited to throw something at, which happens more often in Best Actress. But really, I guess we have to start the conversation with Bradley Cooper. Like he's sitting at the top of this really crowded pile, right?
3: Like as far as I'm concerned, and I think you agree with me, it's like Bradley Cooper, (laughs) and then everyone else who has to fill out the category behind bradley cooper
0: like that's, that's <laughs> everyone it has it is supposed to clap at bradley cooper <laughs> that's it
3: as far as i'm concerned unless like we keep talking about this surprise bomb that is vice like can adam mckay make a mystery movie every year so that we have this like so we
0: have something to look forward to this
3: sword hanging over us every single well, year well last year it was uh,
0: last year it was phantom thread everyone was like well paul thomas anderson's coming and uh it got a best picture nomination so i it, mean
3: it's a great film but it was like not it was not what you know uh, you know, the big short did. So sure. Yeah. But yeah, so vice and Christian Bale as Dick Cheney, like that, that could just sort of change everything. I, you know, and, and the other thing that helps cement these awards conversations for us starting pretty soonish are the critics awards, right? Yeah. And really soon. I can see Ethan Hawke for first reformed getting a lot of the critic uh, awards like that. That's, he seems more of a fit for like what the, critic choice in various circles like to to award but i think none of that is going to stop bradley cooper uh, yeah, because well, he's like a you know quadruple threat this year you know well
0: that is what's going to be really interesting for a star is born in general because i think we get to this point in the season and we kind of forget about how the critics you know the critics don't always determine everything like a lot of times a critical darling won't go anywhere with oscars but in terms of rallying around an alternative like the not so populist hero that is where it can really happen i think you're totally right that ethan hawk is really well positioned to be that person like first reform came out earlier this year like critics love it it wasn't that huge a movie but Ethan Hawke is pretty well liked by critics and the Academy as well. And I think as much as critics do love A Star is Born and have championed it, when you're sitting there in a room with 30 other people and you're like, who can we really lend our weight behind? Like, you can get that kind of group effort with critics groups that never happens with the Academy because it's 5,000 people all voting by themselves in their houses. And, you know, Viggo Mortensen, Green Book is someone else who keeps coming up. I don't think Green Book is going to be a critical favorite. And Clenny Swood's coming up in The Mule, speaking of surprises. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, at this point, like... If I was in the room, like, would I be the one like throwing my weight behind Ryan Gosling, and everyone else would be like, "You moron, move on." Like, it feels like he needs the help, which I didn't expect a few weeks ago.
3: Oh no, Kitty, I want you to just like keep championing First Man, like all the way
0: till the end. But guys, but guys, the story about the white men who conquered the moon
3: <laughs> and. Brought us jazz just a few years ago. Oh so, like, Lord! All right, all right. I'm not. I'm things.
0: not. I'm not doing all of it. <laughs> no, no.
3: Okay, but like, do you ever wish that the you, you talk about a, the academy as a group of like five thousand people who vote in their houses? But do you ever wish that there were like voting blocks? uh in in the academy there has to be voting blocks in the academy yeah right? i
0: mean you can definitely imagine a group of like 50 people who like all work in a studio or something like that like organizing themselves but it's just so big that it has to be something bigger than like all right everyone we're getting it together like this i do this every you know when i vote in the critics choice awards like i'll talk to a handful of friends and be like okay i want to put i want to get this person on the ballot so will you put them on your ballot too and like i'll put your person you know you just use my like, horse trading there yeah i don't think it ever works like it feels like you could but there's just you know the critics choice awards is a much smaller group in the Academy, but when you have that many people, like the the mean it all just kind of settles around like more of a consensus just by the sheer number of people in it. Yeah.
3: Something that that Sean pointed out in his article, and I think rightly so, is that of the people who are at the front of the race, none of them are a person of color. There are some options, you know, John David Washington and Black Klansmen, or Michael B. Jordan for all of the things for Cre- well, creed for Creed, and like and it would also be for black panther well but
0: I mean? then we should talk about how black like for supporting actor for black panther i feel like he has a pretty decent shot like we don't want to dive into that category but that would seem like it would only confuse his potential black panther campaign um yeah and you got chadwick boseman
3: yeah um and then rami malik who is who is also not white is in the conversation even though like bohemian rhapsody is we we talked about on this podcast last week bohemian rhapsody is maybe getting mixed negative reviews but rami malik is getting positive reviews and so like you know he could be in the mix there i mean certainly come the globes
0: the globes can decide to do what they want but they're not campaigning it as a musical or comedy so they oh, like the idea right. of like him walking around away with that although he would be competing against bradley cooper anyway in theory but it's also not competing as a musical so uh, anyway,
3: no, he'd be up against Lin Manuel Miranda.
0: <laughs> <laughs> don't don't underestimate that guy.
3: So you know it's it's an it's an interesting race. Sean's article over on the Ringer is when when you when he gets into breaking down the nominees is a really good article. I just disagree with his headline that this is like the most competitive after race because I think it's just like it's just Cooper's to lose at this point. Yeah, come prove me wrong in December when we see what Christian Bale can do, but.
0: Yeah, when we see what Christian Bale can do, when we see what critical consensus winds up doing. I mean, last year, like, we really felt like, I mean, there was a huge critical consensus behind Willem Dafoe that didn't wind up giving him the award in the end. But, you know, Gary Oldman won a lot of critical awards. Like, you know, he was in the, like, obvious, quote-unquote, like, consensus choice uh, position in the best actor race, and he wound up winning anyway. So if you start seeing, like, the New York Film Critics Circle give it to Bradley Cooper, like, then I think you've got a real, like, he's walking away with the whole thing.
3: Yeah, and I, it, I think it's gonna be one of those things where we're like we're gonna be like it's Bradley Cooper, it's Bradley Cooper, and then because we have a few months to go on this, Katie, <laughs> yeah, no, we're come January, be, we're gonna convince ourselves it's not Bradley Cooper. That's exactly and then what's gonna happen. It'll swing back around. So yeah. I've, been, I've been on this around this block a few times, but um, it's so crazy to me that Willem Dafoe didn't win last year. It's um, it's that was crazy. Just, like crushing to me, but I, I think there is just a kind of thing. Like I hope that. The critics, uh, when the critic awards come out, they do lift up Ethan Hawke. And even if that doesn't lead him to an Oscar, like, it's just another facet of this award season is like we start talking about momentum around other people and bradley
0: cooper feels unstoppable to me but i'd like to see other people come and try yeah well ethan hawk i think we agree it would be hard for him to win but it would be his third nomination it feels like it's like okay well ethan hawk's gonna win an oscar eventually which doesn't always pan out for everybody but like he's had such a long career there seems to be no indication he won't act till he's 90 uh so that would just kind of help build his lifelong consensus i guess
3: I think he's also, like, unlike,
0: I think Sean mentioned this as an
3: article, that, like, Bradley Cooper, who does not like to talk about his personal life, and, you know, bless for that, like, keep your personal life personal if you want to, but, like, Cooper's, like, award season run thus far has been, like, populated by him telling the same three stories over and over and over again. I think mm-hmm. that's what, how Sean put it. Ethan Hawke is a much different animal when it comes to like oh, talk, yeah. talking about his work and talking about everything. And so, you know, in terms of like someone we're going to hear a lot from selling their own role for the next few months. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think I'm more interested in all of the things that Ethan Hawke might want to say just because Bradley Cooper doesn't want to talk about that kind of stuff. So
0: uh meanwhile, Vico Mortensen, like, I don't know what I know about his life, like maybe literally nothing. maybe he's like out talking about it, but he's such a mystery to me. And I kind of like that about it. So he can go, uh, keep things to himself as much as he wants through the Green Book campaign.
3: Bego speaks seven different languages so he can keep
0: a secret in seven different languages. So <laughs> there you go. I will say, even though, I, as I was saying, I don't think Green Book is going to be a critical favorite and I think the movie has a lot of problems. I, I think he's wonderful in it, like really legitimately great, even with a character who has like... Some problematic aspects, and there will be there will be some Green Book wars to come. Just everybody get ready for that. But I would be really happy with his nomination. Like you know, Captain Fantastic was also a movie I didn't totally love, but I thought he was wonderful in that. He's built up such a good body of work. I guess my personal favorite for this whole thing is going to be Ryan Gosling. That's going to be the cross I'll die on. But I'll be uh, I'll be done with Ego, too. Do you have a, Do you have a personal campaign that you're taking close to your heart?
3: Um. <laughs> just i think bradley cooper is so good and a Star is born. <laughs> and i'm not even like a huge bradley cooper fan i just think he's he's tremendous i think he should he's be rewarded for what he has achieved with that film
0: it's kind of a good feeling at this point in the Oscar oscars to be like no my favorite is in the lead position like it's it's weird but you kind of have to get just get comfortable with it you know? i
3: know my favorite is also popular <laughs> like that never <laughs> happens. i know <laughs>
2: this year I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. Each month they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. two pounds of ground beef, and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com cadence. That's butcherbox.com cadence we
0: talked a lot about the main acting and directing and picture categories, but we haven't gotten into uh, some of the, uh, not, I guess, below the line ones. Uh, but the biggest one that we haven't talked about at all, I think, is screenplay, which I hadn't been paying that much attention to, and then all of a sudden realized that it's a total flip from last year, where last year the original screenplay category was crazy stacked. Get Out wound up winning, uh, and like in a spot where something like Lady Bird like, in another year might have been a guarantee there. And Adapted was kind of weirdly thin. Uh, and this year it's the reverse, like original screenplay. It's got plenty of good uh, screenplays in it, but yeah. <laughs> pretty much just one big, heavy best picture contender. And then Adapted is totally stacked up. I was talking to, this is the corner where we quote David Sims on this podcast every week. Hi, David. Um, Who floated to me a theory in Adapted, which is where I wanted to start, that uh, Black Klansman could be a runaway winner. Because Spike Lee does not have an Oscar. He has an honorary Oscar, but not a competitive one. Uh, We've talked about how we want him to get in for best director, but it's crowded. It might be difficult. I was kind of convinced by it. like I'm not sure I'm going to put my chips all in that direction. But I don't know. Like Black Klansman for screenplay seems like a campaign that could really happen.
3: What like what were some of the reasons, like, just because of what you just mentioned?
0: Yeah, like, so, you know, Black has got focus behind it. It's got a campaign. I think we've talked about how it's been doing a handful of events. Um, Spike Lee is weirdly under-rewarded by the Academy. It seems difficult for him to win Best Director, though I don't think impossible. I think we've established that Best Director is kind of fuzzy at this point. Um, but, you know, the the main competition in Adapted would be First Man, which we've talked about having its problems. Uh, it feels you could talk, but Barry Jenkins has his Best Picture Oscar uh can you ever forgive me is in there which is a wonderful screenplay but it's a smaller movie widows uh which we remember jillian flynn wrote the screenplay for that she didn't get nominated for gone girl which everyone thought was going to happen so i don't know there's like an argument against everything else in there so maybe black Landsman could rise to the top i mean also stars born i didn't mention like it's in there it's obviously an adaptation of an adaptation of an adaptation and like dorothy barker is credited on the screen on the title screen That's so <laughs> that might count. i don't think she, i don't think she would get the nomination which is a shame
3: uh yeah, that's one category where I will not stump for Bradley Cooper, um, <laughs> but, um, but but I don't know. Parker
0: would be all about it. I
3: would be really cool. Um, I can see that. Widows is an interesting one. Like I think once again, it'll sort of depend how that film hits with the broader audience, but. Gillian Flynn did so much good work uh, around Sharp Objects earlier this year. So it's like one of those things where I'd like to see someone get nominated for their full breadth of work in the year 2018. You know, and then I I can't see Barry Jenkins not getting nominated for A Beale Street Talk.
0: Yeah, no, that that, that nomination seems pretty certain, especially because like James Baldwin has really never been adapted in this way before. Like it's such an achievement just for that alone.
3: And, you know, a lot of the language is... Like lifted straight from the book in an interesting way, you know, and it's, it's, I think adaptation wise of all these films that I've seen, it's one of the most impressive for the way in which it interacts with the original text this is a place where Black Panther could get in, which is super yeah, interesting. You know? I was
0: thinking about that too. I mean, so last year, Logan like breaks the superhero streak and gets a screenplay nomination. So, uh, but a Marvel, like a big M Marvel movie has yet yeah. to do it. But it, I mean, Black Panther, like, and for all the things we talked about that make Black Panther great, like the screenplay really does help set it apart. It doesn't feel like a factory stamped Marvel movie.
3: Yeah. But it's interesting because like, it's not taken really from the comics at all. So it's a, it's a, deeply loose adaptations, like the characters are from the comics, but like none of the storyline is really. So I mean, so in terms of like adapting material... I mean, maybe that's just like a different muscle in in the adaptation game. I don't know. Crazy Rich Asians is also in there, which is kind of fun. But like, you know, I don't know. I don't know about Crazy Rich Asians. We'll
0: see. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you can consider wildlife in the running, too. Like, that movie has gotten a lot of attention for Carey Mulligan's performance. But I think, you know, Paul Dano's been around for a long time. Like, he and Zoe Kazan adapted it together. Everyone loves a a love story in the middle of their campaign. I would love to pull for The Death of Stalin for Armando Iannucci, because he got nominated for In the Loop, which is just one of the funniest movies that's ever existed as far as I'm concerned. And Death of Stalin came out earlier in the year. I feel like we're not talking about it enough, but I would like us to keep talking about it. Have you seen Death of Stalin?
3: No, I mean, it soured a bit for me because of the tambour of it all, but it's, it's a really, really funny movie and a really clever screenplay. And I mean, Anucci like, how can you not want to to throw something his way? The other adaptation that I would stump for is S- The Sisters Brothers, because that's Oh my a, God,
0: like, I love The Sisters Brothers. Uh, I-
3: like, a book I loved and a film I really loved that didn't get, like, a ton of attention, but I think as, like, an adaptation, it might, you know, get there, so. Yeah,
0: I, uh, th- Justice for The Sisters Brothers, maybe that's what yeah. they'll all die on uh, yeah. this campaign season. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about original screenplay, which to me has, I guess, like, so Roma, I would call, like, the big heavyweight best picture contender in here, but probably right behind it is the favorite, which we talked about a lot as, like, maybe being too weird for the Academy or the viewers at certain film festivals, but uh, is a fascinating work. I, and uh, Jorgen Santhimos has a track record in the screenplay categories, even when his films don't necessarily take off other places, which I don't think will be the case for the favorite, but uh, we got those two, and then it gets really interesting. What, uh, what else are you seeing on the uh, contenders here? Well, Eighth Grade. Eighth Grade, I think, actually,
3: this is this is one of those places where, like, I think, just like with Jordan Peele and Get Out, where it's like, we want to award this movie that is, you know, has a populist movement behind it, but also, like, has an intellectual bent to it. I could see... Bo Burnham, not just getting nominated for Eighth Grade, but even winning for Eighth Grade, because there's just like so mm. much affection for that film, and I don't know where else you put it if not, you know, Bo Burnham's not going to get a director, not going to get the director award or anything like that. But like, where do you put the like really strong affection I keep seeing for Eighth Grade if not in the screenplay category?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think a campaign for Elsie Fisher will happen and will be very justified, but that's a tough campaign, especially for uh, for someone who's still a teenager. As I was talking about, like. Lady Bird being something that might have won in this category. I have Get Out not been such a huge competitor. Um, Like kind of the well-liked indie that's really uh, smart and well-written is uh, a great contender in, in the screenplay category. I love predicting a win for it
3: this is where I'm foolishly putting my chips but like you know it's probably vice right? like I don't know <laughs> I mean because Adam McKay Adam McKay won for the big short like he he not only has a tremendous amount of wit in his screenplays and I think wit is often really you know rewarded but he has like it, those fun experiments and style and like interjections and cut scenes and all this sort of stuff like that you know it's just like there's just a lot of cleverness brimming out of these um, I mean, if The Big Short is any indication for what Vice might be, a lot of cleverness sort of like brimming out of it. And so I, I just, I, I think people are going to see Vice and even if it's like, even if Vice doesn't wind up being like a bruiser in the in the best picture or anything like that, I, I, you know, it's, it probably has some muscle here.
0: It would be fascinating for Adam McKay, like director of some of the most beloved comedies of the century to wind up with two screenplay Oscars. <laughs> I mean, he like, he has deserved them. I thought he deserved it for The Big Short, but that would just, what a funny, like, twist in a career um but one of the things i thought was so impressive about the screenplay for the big short was how much information it condenses into something that's really entertaining and watchable and you think about how how complicated the bush era was and how like kind of emotionally difficult it's going to be to go back into that Uh, i can imagine a similar kind of feat of just like having you process everything that's going on with these people
3: yeah i mean like the fact that he made a film about the mortgage crisis not just watchable but for me rewatchable like i've rewatched the big short several times (laughs) It feels like, I don't know, a uh, candy coating of something that you really need. Like, you, w- I want to watch a movie about the mortgage crisis. I want to feel like I understand what happened better. I want to feel like um, I can talk about various kinds of loans and all that sort of stuff. And, like, Adam McKay's like, here, I made it super digestible for you. You're welcome. And I'm like, oh, I get to feel smart and be entertained. That's great. And so if he can do the same thing, as you say, for, the, like, the Bush era, uh, where I can not, I mean, we all lived through it, but, like, you know some of the the backroom movers and shakers. Maybe we're not so aware of, and so I don't know. I'm I'm just I'm really intrigued to see what this movie is, and I think a lot of us could walk away feeling like good about ourselves that we saw this movie and we understood it and we were entertained and all that. And that everything stuff. is so much worse than yeah. it was
0: back then. Uh, One thing I wanted to pop in as a possibility, Uh, it seems like it's maybe distant, maybe not. Uh, A Quiet Place is definitely going to be thrown in the mix. Um, It was such a huge accomplishment earlier in the year. We talked about how it's like horror that's popular, but maybe not going to be the get out path for awards. But it does seem like somewhere where people who maybe do want to make sure horror keeps being in the conversations could reward John Krasinski for his work.
3: Yeah, an interesting, you know, <laughs> a largely silent uh, film getting nominated for screenplay is interesting, but like, you know, it's not all about the dialogue. And, and we should mention that, um, or I, I, I'm choosing to mention that like one of the only episodes of Buffy the Empire Slayer that was ever nominated for in, in the major awards was an episode called Hush, which is also largely dialog So like, I think there is something that maybe writers admire the skill in putting together a story without the crutch of, of words
0: yeah so your personal favorite here is eighth grade i guess
3: yeah i mean i i love some of these other movies like i love the, like the favorite and I, I love some of this other stuff but like in terms of like where i want to champion eighth grade it would be here versus like in best picture in director in any of the acting categories
0: yeah, I think I might throw in for the favorite just because that movie is so—it's uh, such a feat the way that it's starting to gather all those stories but uh, I, I'm with you that 8th grade as an underdog is probably the most fun one to root for here. Okay, so now we're going to welcome Richard back on the podcast uh, and share the conversation that he had with Richard E. Grant, who is in the film Can You Ever Forgive Me? opposite Melissa McCarthy, uh, playing a man who is uh, suffering from AIDS, who's kind of a con artist and who has fallen on hard times and falls into this scheme with Melissa McCarthy's character uh, and is wonderful in it, like so warm and funny and kind of this uh, unreliable guy. They have a scene toward the end of the movie together that's just such a huge emotional wallop uh, that I didn't necessarily see coming when I saw it. He is getting some well-deserved awards buzz for the role, uh, and Richard talked to him about that. So let's listen to their
4: conversation.
1: So I'm thrilled to be on the line now with the great Richard E. Grant, who is so wonderful in Can You Ever Forgive Me? Richard, thank you for being here.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: So this is quite an exciting movie. You know, it's a great director in Mariel Heller, and it's such an interesting story, played so well at these festivals. And it's such a nice big juicy role for you I'm curious what the kind of origin is in terms of your involvement with the with the film
4: I got a call in November a year and a half ago from an agent saying there's a movie that starts shooting mid-January and you have 24 hours to read it and to decide and I said well who, who's pulled out who's dropped dead whatever she said that's irrelevant you know I'm born nosy Parker so I asked too many questions and she said don't ask any of these questions it's absolutely unimportant remember that Albert Finney turned down, Lawrence of Arabia, and Peter O'Toole went on and had a big career as a result. Not that I'm comparing myself to that. She just was trying to put it into context as saying, don't get stuck on that stuff. And then I read it, and I knew that Melissa McCarthy was playing Lee Israel, and Maya Heller was directing it, and I had hugely admired Die of a Teenager, a teenage girl, um, and that it was going to be essentially produced, written, directed, and starred by women, so I knew that chances were it was going to be collaborative because my experiences of working with female directors before had been characterized by that. So I jumped at it and said yes instantly, didn't need 24 hours.
1: When reading the script, did you, I mean, this is maybe kind of a corny, actor question, but did you kind of feel like you knew this character or or you had a sort of an idea of how to play him?
4: I had some idea, but you know, it's that weird thing that's what you read on the page and, and what you have in your head like the T.S. Eliot poem, you know, between the the dream and the reality falls a shadow. It, it wasn't until I actually got to New York and I urged Marielle because I got there on a Wednesday for costume fittings and we were shooting the following Monday. And I had ne- never met Melissa and she was coming in late because she was on another project. She only came in on the Thursday night and I said, is there any possibility that on the Friday morning we could have just maybe two hours just to meet each other and go through all the scenes that we have together because it seemed to me that they had this sort of odd couple buddy platonic relationship in the story that seemed to me so crucial to make the thing work. And I thought if I'm meeting her for the first time on Monday morning, I would not be sleeping for the next 72 hours. So it turns out Melissa had exactly the same impulse. And we met and within about you know, three nine seconds, we got on really well. And all three of us sitting together in a hotel room downtown in Manhattan had the same impulse and the same instinct about what how the story was and what the relationship was and just reading the scenes out loud with Melissa then kind of it became apparent of how to play it so you know I wish I could say that I knew there was an enormous amount of preparation that had gone into it beforehand that informed what that was going to be but it was it was working with her and seeing how absolutely straight down the line dead seriously she took the role and played the part that informed how I was doing I knew that I was you know the polar opposite contrast uh, to her um, hedgehog curmudgeon like character and my garrulous you know Labrador going up and licking anybody in sight opposite to that you know I was trying to find a, a movie reference of what relationship will be just to get in my head what the, where the thing is coming from and I immediately thought of two movies from the late 60s one was the Neil Simon play Odd Couple with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau, you know, which was like a male marriage, but you know they banted backwards and forwards with complete opposites, and then the other one, the John Schlesinger movie Midnight Cowboy, with Dustin Hoffman and John Voight, where again there are two people completely different sides of the social track who form this weird sort of semiotic relationship. So that's that's as much as I had, and the only clue that I had about this character was that he walked around Manhattan using a small stubby cigarette holder because he thought they were going to ward off cancer because he was a chain smoker, so I obviously thought that he somebody who thought that he had a certain modicum of style to pull that off.
1: He's got a panache, certainly. I'm curious about the sort of importance of, you know, getting along with a co-star like this who, you know, you guys have such intense chemistry and and dynamic throughout the film that's both loving, antagonistic, and, you know. Do you find that, like, you can only really get to such a credible place if you off-camera have a good rapport with that person? Or can there ever be a sort of antagonism off-screen that works on-screen?
4: If there's got to be a basis of real real affection, which, you know, the camera will pick up and magnify a thousand times. That I don't know that I've ever seen a movie or a play where if people have been really antagonistic towards each other in real life, or there's been no chemistry, that the relationship has worked. I mean, you may immediately give me 10 examples of where it has done, but I thought that it was absolutely crucial that certainly for my supporting character to work with hers, we had to have a real connection. You know, as I said when I introduced my bit, when I was asked to at the Telluride Film Festival, working with Melissa Carthy is a real challenge because she's very difficult. <laughs> you know, she never knows her lines. She's grumpy. Um, she hated me on site. You know, all of those. You know, none, none, none of that happened. She's. I, I don't know how to say this without it sounding pretentious, but she is incredibly emotionally present. In that when she talks about anything, you never feel that it's guarded or through, it's being screened or through a gauze of intellectualization in advance. You just, she's like um, fitness paper. You, you say something to her and she's instantly affected in the, in the best possible way. So working with her felt very truthful at all times. And I think that comes across in, in how the relationship works on the, on the screen.
1: There really is a sort of palpable bond that kind of comes off the screen. And I think it's really interesting, too, that, you know, this is a kind of queer friendship that we don't see a ton of in film for, you know, a variety of reasons, I'm sure. What was the discussion like, or or you're sort of th- thinking about, like, placing this movie where it is, you know, because this is a different time in the, in the 90s and, and uh there were certain different realities for gay people and all that. Was that stuff that you were sort of conscious of trying to communicate, or is it just was it just on the page and you didn't need to worry about contextualizing it like that?
4: We certainly did. we talked about it and we certainly thought you know discussed that in detail because what you don't want to do is do anything that is disrespectful or caricaturing in any way. And the, the fact that Lee Israel, as a gay as a lesbian woman, was one of the few women in the Julius Bar um, as a regular meant that she was very often wore Walkman with headphones on to say, fuck the world, don't don't come and mess with me, which Jack Hawk doesn't, you know, he rides through that. He doesn't, doesn't give a toss because he thinks if he can get a free drink out of her and then the subsequent friendship, um, he's not going to take no for an answer. And the fact that in the early 90s, the AIDS crisis was so predominant in New York, I can remember, I'd done a film, ill-fated film called Hudson Hawk playing the husband of Sandra Bernhardt um, in a Bruce Willis big action-adventure thing. And when I went to see Sandra, who was living in a meatpacking district at that time in 1991, I had never seen Caucasian men on street corners with begging bowls and cardboard signs saying, I've been abandoned by my family, I've been abandoned by my friends, I'm dying of AIDS, please, you're the only help that I can get. That was so shocking. And there, there's a bit in the film where she asks me if she can confide in me about what she is, you know, her, her forgery scam. She said, you can't tell anybody. And I said, well, I, I can't tell anybody because all my friends are dead. Mm-hmm. That was absolutely informed by the visceral memory of seeing that and I was so shocked by it and I still am now. So, I think that's, and I, I lost two great friends, one of whom was in, played the Scottish runner who wouldn't run on a Sunday in Charities of Fire. He died of AIDS in 1990. Mm-hmm. So, that, I was very, very aware of that history at that time, although I wasn't living in New York. So, the reality of what people were dealing with is, is something that certainly informed you know, how we to the scenes and especially the, the final scene that I have where I say goodbye to her
1: yeah I mean it, it's 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 powerful and it, I think it's a lot of its power comes from the fact that you know um, it's not a story about AIDS it's just but that's just part of the reality of these people's lives you know and I think that yeah. in showing that people who were suffering from HIV or from AIDS that they had other things going on they had their, their lives had to sort of carry on as long as they could um, yeah. and I think that's really nicely illustrated you mentioned Hudson Hawk, Charities of Fire. I'm curious about your, uh, if we can take a step back, you had really just a fascinating, kind of peripatetic career, I guess you could call it, um, journeyman actor. Some questions about that narrative. The first being, I mean, I'm sure you get this all the time, but is with Nail and I the, the kind of big thing that you, that because like, it's such a cult hit, do you still get a lot of attention for that or recognition um, when you're out and about?
4: I have done, especially in England.
1: Oh, um, yeah, sure.
4: Because... It's now almost part of the student curriculum, if you like, because I know, I know this from Twitter and Instagram and emails and letters that I still get when people you know, take the trouble to write, that that, that coming-of-age story that, even though it's set in 1969, still seems to have some reverberation or relevance, or call it what you will, identifiability with people who are going through that phase in their lives, leaving home and having to become an adult. So... It's on the student circuit in England, particularly, so I'm very aware that it does—it just doesn't go away. And there's literally, um, because I live in London, there's not a day that goes by where somebody doesn't shout out a quote, or ask me for a selfie to say a line from that movie. So it's one that just hasn't gone away. And it, you know, the irony has not escaped me that the first screen role that I ever had, playing an unemployed actor, has led, ironically, to every single direct that I've worked with from Altman's Coppola, Scorsese, Jane Campion, Down, and Sideways, as a result of being in that film. So I really owe it everything. And I'm j- I'm very grateful that Danny T. Lewis turned it down. Oh, wow. Is, it that, is that right? The unbearable lateness lo- of being otherwise... I know absolutely unequivocally that I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today.
1: Wow! Wow! Yeah, I mean it's so it's such an enduring film. Uh, you know that one of our co-hosts on this podcast he's he's uh, he's jealous that he couldn't be here talking to you. I'll, I'll tell you that. <laughs> you know another another movie that I, I I would be remiss not to mention just for because of my own association with it um, is of course Spice World. Uh, is that uh-huh. something that people bring up to you as well? Because I would think that was that's yeah, a pretty big. Yeah, what's
4: interesting hit. about that is that they, Richard they expect me to feel shame of having been in Spice World. But um, you know, my response to that is that my daughter was eight at the time, and it was the you know it was still the era of answer machines, and a message from her agent was a little red blinking light at the end of the day, and she listened to the answer machine before I got back. She'd come back from school and put it on, and they'd said, "Oh, please call agent about role to play Spice Girls manager in Spice World, the movie," and she said, even at that age, she said. Even if Disney offered you a lifelong contract, you have to be in Spice World, the movie, because all my friends want to meet them, and I want to meet them. So, And they were hilarious to work with. They were so disingenuous and so taken aback by the global fame that wallop, walloped them sideways and made them all that money. And there was no... They didn't really learn lines. Everything was off the cuff, and they were given a general idea of what the scene was. And then they just improvised, so it was... It was a hilarious
1: experience,
4: and I've stayed friends with them. So, so it was. i I think back on it with great affection, and I had amazing clothes too.
1: Yeah, no, there's absolutely, and and you know, I think that affection is exactly what you you know you should feel about it. It, it from an outside perspective, it's uh it was a seminal film for a lot of people and kind of distilled a certain energy from that era so so well that uh, it's obviously stood the test of time, which is I guess the
4: well, what was what was bizarre as a result of that, I found out that Adele. Wanted to meet me because she was a fan of this movie, and I got four episodes in Girls because Lena Dunham had seen Spice World the movie. So, you know, that's that's the best possible answer to you know, do you feel ashamed of having done Spice World the movie? Not at all.
1: And you know, I'm just curious in general uh, with with all of the, the the many roles you've done, the incredible directors you've worked with is there any sort of particular experience that stands out i mean obviously with nail was the kind of beginning of things but anything along the way that you also kind of see as a, as a major you know road post on on your career
4: i had seen uh, in 1976 when i was a first year drama student theater school i saw nashville and this was pre-mobile phones pre-video pre-dvd i went to a repertory cinema to see nashville and i saw that 27 times and I thought the chances of ever being in a movie or certainly meeting or working with Robert Altman was you know, a complete pipe dream. So the fact that I got to be in the player, the unfortunate pret or ready-to-wear, as we caught here, and then Gosford Park was such an unexpected bonus. And we were such great friends that I I feel indebted to him for. His loyalty to actors and how liberating he was as somebody to work with.
1: Yeah, he was. I mean, he was really one of a kind. I guess you could say. Yeah. Now, in sort of navigating all of this long, lucrative career, this is really like you know rich with you know, different kind of textures and genres. Is there a strategy to you know in your head when you're kind of navigating all this, or is it just sort of one thing at a time as, as you go along?
4: One thing at a time. As a journeyman actor, as you rightly described this earlier. You take the best offer that you have. And unless you're an A-lister where you have the choice of every script, you know that every job is one that you hope is is going to be that you're going to work with worthwhile people with a good script and a good director. But um, to say that there's a career strategy out of it, I have no idea because my final assessment when I left uh, drama school and university was the drama professor said to me, He said, you know, I think that you're going to have a career as a director because you're very odd looking. You've got a face like a sort of, you know, mortician's assistant. I don't think you're ever going to really have a career as an actor. So the fact that I've ended up having a career as long as I have done, you know, with a lantern jaw and all this stuff um, is absolutely astonishing to me.
1: And such a varied one, you know, and and I'm just, you know, even looking forward to later this season. I mean, you have you have you're in the Nutcracker and the Four Realms and you're in this wonderful, you know, smaller film with Melissa McCarthy. It's just is there anything you feel like you haven't yet done that you are curious to do?
4: Well, I'm in the middle of Star Wars at the moment, and that is something that I saw in 1977 when I was a second year student. So the fact that I'm now in it, you know, four decades later is a complete astonishment to me.
1: Yeah. I'm guessing that you probably can't tell us anything about who you're playing in that.
4: Uh, Yes, that's right. Otherwise they'd chop my knees off. I'd just be fired.
1: Yeah. I'm curious also like as your career's gone on and as the industry has changed what have the sort of lessons been I mean you know you see now like bigger movie star type people coming down I'm saying down you know or going across to television uh, Mm -hmm. you know crossing a barrier that once was sort of impenetrable what have you is there anything you've taken away from this kind of development Um, anything that you were once reluctant to do and now say sure why not
4: I think that the in England because the the industry is so tiny compared to is a cottage sized industry compared to the US. The migration from doing everything from a theatre play, a fringe off West End, off Broadway, radio, television or a movie has always been the sort of status quo of a life as an actor there. But that changeover in America of, as you say, alias people doing long form television roles where, you know, there's amazing writing and directors, I think that's you know, I won't be the first to say it, but it seems to me like literally a golden age of of television drama at the moment. And stuff that I, you know, see on a weekly basis that's coming out of Netflix and Amazon and and all the other big studios is absolutely astonishing. So I think that that has finished. That the the divide is gone.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, definitely. And I think that any, everyone benefits from it. It feels like. Are you a big consumer of movies and television? Like, are you are you an actor who kind of feeds okay, off? Okay. Well, if them? I
4: tell you that if I tell you that I watched. Um, all all series of Breaking Bad over five days, <laughs> from like dawn till almost the next dawn. That that'll that'll answer your question.
1: Yeah, one of those kind of just itchy, uh, like red-eyed binges where you just can't pull exactly. yourself away. Yeah. yeah, are you the same? I am the same, yeah. I, I'll go through... A, it's funny, because when I binge a show, though, I feel like a week later, I couldn't tell you anything that happened, you know? Yeah. It's, it's just sort of... So what have you just binged? What have I just binged? Oh, I just binged uh, a show... I guess it's less of a binge, because it's half an hour, but um, I did a show called Forever that's on Amazon with Maya Rudolph that's really good, and, you know, I binge a lot for work, so I'll have to, yeah. re- you know, review a whole season of a Netflix show, so... Uh, um, How
4: wonderful that you get paid to do that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's, it's really... It's really something. And I get paid to go to film festivals, which you've been doing the rounds, uh, certainly at Telluride. And um, were you in Toronto as well? I was, yeah. Did you get a chance to speak with people who'd seen um, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Was there anything surprising about the experience of taking a film like that to these kind of, you know, awards-pointed kind of big festivals?
4: What genuinely astonished me is that I got to Telluride, that I'd been to Toronto a few times before, but I'd never been to Telluride before. And the... There were no pre-reviews. There, I had no idea that the movie would be reviewed within two hours of its showing for the first time that afternoon on a Saturday. And when the first great one came from one of the trade, I was pretty astonished and taken aback. And then they kept coming, and they've kept on coming. And now I've been told that on Rotten Tomatoes it has one hundred percent critic consensus, which. Is out of the ballpark, as far as you know. In my experience, and the thing that struck me more than anything, both in Toronto and in Telluride, was that people came up and would grab me by the arm, as I'm sure they did with Melissa as well, and they would say, "This movie really made them feel something, and they cared for the people, and they really felt something, as though this was something that a lot of movies didn't afford anymore." And they said that this was human and touching and you know dealt with people in real life and they identified with them so that that was the thing that really took me aback and continues to do so I keep sort of waiting for somebody to go nah nah, you've got it all wrong but that has surprised me enormously.
1: From my perspective, you know, I saw it at Telluride and really liked it and was like, I wonder how this will play in Toronto, which is such a big festival. And I don't mean this in a pejorative sense at all. But you know, this is a smaller film, a quieter yeah. film. What I saw in the ground in Toronto was just like more and more the film sort of seemed to only exponentially grow in stature, which was really exciting, because it's not always that these kinds of stories get, get that sort of uplift, which is, I think, really important. And as a frequent purveyor or rather a, a, a go to julius pretty often that was a that was a nice uh thing to see that that place was honored uh not just because it's a nice looking bar but for actually what that place was
4: it's the oldest gay bar in manhattan is that true
1: yeah mm-hmm. and you still see a pretty nicely mixed crowd it's you know older younger it's a nice kind of communal meeting spot and i feel like the film really honored that which is among many other great good things i
4: thought it was very generous of them to have allowed us to film in there because Lee Israel was, you know, was such a regular in there as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. That so we
4: didn't have to create that in a studio in Queens or anything like that. You know, we could actually do it in the place where it happened. So that that feeling of authenticity, I think, was really important. And all the bookshops in the film as well. You know, many of which were closing down or have since closed down. Were then there wasn't a single studio bookshop. Every single one was the real thing.
1: That's great. You can tell. I mean, it has that just sort of added texture to it, which really makes the film so special well i mean also you and melissa mccarthy obviously doing a lot of that you I know mean, I wish you luck with the rest of the, the kind of release of the film and with star wars and uh maybe i don't know maybe we'll see you around oscar time <laughs> okay thank you very much
0: That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you for listening. Keep finding us on Apple Podcasts. Keep leaving us reviews, telling your friends, uh, and keep finding our work. We're at VanityFair.com writing lots and lots of things, including Joanna writing about Naomi Watson, the future of Game of Thrones, if you want more of that, which you should. We're all on Twitter at Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. Joanna. I'm at Jen Rothis. Mike is at Mike underscore Hogan, and Richard is at Rylaws. You know where to find them. And they'll both be back next week. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth. And the award for the best impression of potential
1: screenplay nominee The Quiet Place goes to Richard and Mike.